When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we welcome you to this edition of Tuesday People, the podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Album. Alongside is my friend and producer of the program, Lisa Goich. Hi, Lisa. Always your friend, Mitch. So happy about Always my you. friend, always the producer. That Neither one changes. Always the producer. Yeah, neither one changes. Hasn't changed in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to do something a little bit different. It occurs to me that we just recently passed our 100th anniversary, your 100th show anniversary of this podcast. And I realize in over 100 shows, we have talked about almost every kind of issue and uh, topic and engagement that was inspired by my conversations with Maury Schwartz when he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease, the basis of Tuesdays with Maury, the book. Uh, and yet, in all this time, talking about all these erudite, emotional, personal topics about life and death, I've never really illuminated how Maury and I got to know one another and why it became the kind of relationship that after 16 years without contact, we were able to sort of step back in and resume these conversations the way that we did in such an intimate fashion. You know, it's not everybody that you haven't seen for 16 years that you suddenly show up one Tuesday when they're deathly ill and then come back the next Tuesday and the next Tuesday and the next Tuesday and the next Tuesday. Right. It's, it's not a normal thing. And Especially it, a professor. Like, yeah. I don't have any professors that I had that were like that. Had a relationship so, like that, right. So, yeah, yeah. So what that tells you is that it had to be kind of a unique relationship to begin with, to be mm -hmm. able to, uh, shall we say, transcend 16 years and then kind of pick up, despite mm -hmm. the big mistake that I made of, you know, not staying in touch with him, uh, the relationship kind of renewed. So today I'm going to share with you from the book, partly, and just from my mind, partly, how Maury and I met and why we established this connection with one another. Uh, so if you like podcasts that read to you a little bit every now and then, <laughs> you're going to like today's edition of Tuesday People, because I'm going to read to you, starting from uh, the third page of the book. And this will help say it better than I could say it just if I was just reminiscing. It is the late spring of 1979, a hot, sticky Saturday afternoon. Hundreds of us sit together side by side in rows of wooden folding chairs on the main campus lawn. We wear blue nylon robes. We listen impatiently to long speeches. When the ceremony is over, we throw our caps in the air and we are officially graduated from college 
the senior class of Brandeis University in the city of Waltham, Massachusetts. For many of us, the curtain has just come down on childhood. Afterward, I find Maury Schwartz, my favorite professor, and introduce him to my parents. He's a small man who takes small steps, as if a strong wind could at any time whisk him up into the clouds. In his graduation day robe, he looks like a cross between a biblical prophet and a Christmas elf. He has sparkling blue-green eyes, thinning silver hair that spills onto his forehead, big ears, a triangular nose, and tufts of graying eyebrows. Although his teeth are crooked and his lower ones are slanted back, as if someone had once punched them in, when he smiles, it's as if you just told him the first joke on earth. He tells my parents how I took every class he taught. He tells them, you have a special boy here. Embarrassed, I look at my feet. Before we leave, I hand my professor a present, a tan briefcase with his initials on the front. I bought this the day before at a shopping mall. I didn't want to forget him. Maybe I didn't want him to forget me. Mitch, you're one of the good ones, he says, admiring the briefcase. Then he hugs me. I feel his thin arms around my back. I am taller than he is, and when he holds me, I feel awkward, older, as if I were the parent and he were the child. He asks if I will stay in touch, and without hesitation, I say, of course. When he steps back, I see that he is crying. So that's the first introduction I gave anybody in the, bo- uh, in the book, Tuesdays with Maury, of who Maury was. And uh, the book actually kind of goes back and forth between the present and those flashbacks of the past. And yeah. that was our graduation. Um, and that was the last time I saw him for 16 years. That wow. moment was the last conversation I had with him for 16 years. And of course, wow. my last conversation with him was a lie because I said to him, of course, I'll come back and see you. And I didn't. A little later in the book, I write about the first time that I actually met him on campus. It is our first class together in the spring of 1976. I enter Maury's large office and notice the seemingly countless books that line the wall shelf after shelf, books on sociology, philosophy, religion, psychology. There's a large rug on the hardwood floor and a window that looks out the campus walk. Only a dozen or so students are there, fumbling with notebooks and syllabi. Most of them wear jeans and earth shoes and plaid flannel shirts. I tell myself it will not be easy to cut a class this small. Maybe I shouldn't take it. Mitchell, Maury says, reading from the attendance list. I raise a hand. Do you prefer Mitch or is Mitchell better? I've never been asked this by a teacher. I do a double take at this man in his yellow turtleneck and green corduroy pants, the silver hair that falls on his forehead. He is smiling. Mitch, I say. Mitch is what my friends call me. Well, Mitch it is then. Maury says, as if closing a deal. And Mitch? Yes. I hope that one day you will think of me as your friend. Now, that was the actual first conversation I ever had with Maury Schwartz. I was... That's uh, nice. I, I didn't embellish the story quite as much as I could have. The fact was that I was standing in the hallway 
looking at how many kids were in the room and realizing, as I wrote there, if I cut this class, they'll know I'm not here. I wanted one of those big orientation classes that had like 500 people in it and they have no idea if you're sleeping in the back or anything like that. Nobody would ever see you, right? Right. (laughs) Nobody would notice. But this class, they're going to know if you're there. And I was halfway in and out of the door when he started calling roll. But my name obviously begins with A, last name. So I was first. And when he called my name out, now I could have, when I look back on it, I could have left and dropped the class at the registrar's office. I could have left. I could have walked out. Uh, But I didn't because I felt guilty when he called my name. So I stepped inside. And in that moment, my whole life changed. You think about that. It sure did. It sure did. In that very moment, if I had, if maybe if I hadn't been the first name, if there had been somebody in the class that had, you know, Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, that's ahead (laughs) of me, you know, or Abel, (laughs) A-B-E-L, or some name like that, I might have had a a second moment to say, I'm going to drop this class, I'm going to leave, and go down the hall to the registrar. And instead, I was lured in, and my entire life, Chase, I would not be speaking to you, Lisa, or you folks who are listening (gasps) to us, or anybody, on that one moment in life. And the truth is, there are so many moments like that in our lives. If you really look back at them, and say, wow, if I had just made a slightly smaller decision, not a monumental decision, uh, not a decision, do I jump off this mm-hmm. cliff or do I keep driving? Just a, do I drop the class or do I not so, drop the class? Yeah. Do I go up and it's say hello to that woman or do I stay here and make yeah. sure I don't feel bad about it? You know, it's those smallest little things and your life can change completely. And mine did. And it changed so many other lives. That one moment not just changed your life, but so many other lives who have been touched by this story. Yeah, and I can guarantee you I had no idea about that at the time either. Yeah. And neither did Maury. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right, so uh, then I moved on to uh, you know starting to go to Maury's class on a regular basis, and I wrote about that in a flashback here. It is my freshman year. Maury is older than most of the teachers, and I am younger than most of the students, having left high school a year early. To compensate for my youth on campus, I wear old gray sweatshirts and box in a local gym and walk around with an unlit cigarette in my mouth, even though I do not smoke. I drive a beat-up Mercury Cougar with the windows down and the music up. I seek my identity in toughness. But it is Maury's softness that draws me, and because he does not look at me as a kid trying to be something more than I am, I relax. I finish that first course with him and enroll for another. He's an easy marker. He doesn't much care for grades. One year, they say, during the Vietnam War, Maury gave all his male students A's to help keep them from the draft. I begin to call Maury Coach, the way I used to address my high school track coach. Maury likes the nickname. Coach, he says. All right, I'll be your coach, and you can be my player. And you can play all the lovely parts of life that I'm too old for now. Sometimes we eat together in the cafeteria. Maury, to my delight, is even more of a slob than I am. He talks instead of chewing, laughs with his mouth open, delivers a passionate thought through a mouthful of egg salad, the little yellow pieces spewing from his teeth. It cracks me up. The whole time I know him, I have two overwhelming desires. To hug him and to give him a napkin. 
It's true. You know, when you meet an adult <laughs> who's a bigger slob than you are, you immediately relax. There's just yeah, something very, especially amongst guys, anyhow, there's something very yeah. comforting about, uh, you know, knowing that your etiquette exceeds at least one other person at the table and that person <laughs> is an adult. I love that. Yeah. Maury uh, always, and I want to be clear, he wasn't a slob because he ha he lacked manners or hygiene. He just loved to talk while he was eating. He would never stop to chew. He was always so full of big <laughs> ideas and always telling you, you know, follow your dreams, follow your heart, follow your, but these little yellow pieces of egg salad would come flying out. You'd be, have to be like a hockey like goalie that. across from him, blocking, <laughs> blocking the little piece, swatting it away, swat away that egg, swat away the yellow. <laughs> <laughs> those were those were some great moments that we had, you know, just uh, sitting those lunches, uh, you know, when anything is possible and you're talking about your future. It just seems such a long time ago. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. When you didn't know what you were going to be and there was still a teacher in your life who was molding you and, and uh, you know, you just looked at them as almost like they were on the opposite side of some invisible fence that they were grown ups and yeah. they were out in the world and you were still, you were, you were old enough to look through the fence now. Like when you're a little kid, you don't even get to look at the fence. You don't even get to, it's not invisible. It's mm -hmm. opaque. You can't see through it. And then you get old enough and it starts to, the opaqueness disappears and it, it becomes more clear and you can start to see through it, but you can't get over there yet. You're still a kid. You're in that in-between adulthood and kid thing. And um, that's yeah, what I was. Such a cool, cool time though. Like I can think back to that. I wish I was there, you know, where you have the whole world ahead of you and everything is in front of you. You know what I mean? There's right. Not right. all this work and stuff and experience is be like, now it's behind me. Right. I loved, I loved when it was in front of me. I loved when I finally decided on a major and when I knew what my life was going to be. And, you yeah. know, like it's, ah, I wish I could go back there just for a week. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I see a lot of the kids who are in those positions today and you'd never know that it was a golden time by them because ah, all they, they do knew. is worry about, oh, I'm not going to pick the right major, the wrong major. I, I'm not making the right decision. I'm not gonna, my grades aren't going to be good enough. I'm not going to be able to hack it. They worry so mm. much about that. And I wonder if maybe we did a little of that too. And now it's just now that we're older and we look back, we only remember the, the feeling of having everything in front of us, but not the burden of like, am I making the right choice or this major's too hard or what, what do I want to go into that for? I don't want my life to be as a political scientist. What does that mean? You know, I'm not political yeah. or a scientist. <laughs> so I don't know. I think we have a way of gilding, gilding our memories. Anyhow, all right, yeah. moving on. Uh, a little later in the year, I wrote this. In the campus bookstore, I shop for the items on Maury's reading list. I purchased books that I never knew existed. Titles such as Youth, Identity, and Crisis, I and Thou, The Divided Self. Before college, I did not know the study of human relations could be considered scholarly. Until I met Maury, I did not believe it. But his passion for books is real and contagious. We begin to talk seriously sometimes, after class, when the room is emptied. He asks me questions about my life, then quotes lines from Eric Fromm, Martin Buber, Eric Erickson, Often he defers to their words, footnoting his own advice, even though he obviously thought the same things himself. It is at these times that I realize he is indeed a professor, not an uncle. One afternoon I am complaining about the confusion of my age, what is expected of me versus what I want for myself. 
Have I told you about the tension of opposites? He asks. The tension of opposites? Life is a series of pulls back and forth. You want to do one thing, but you're bound to do something else. Something hurts you, yet you know it shouldn't. You take certain things for granted, even when you know you should never take anything for granted. A tension of opposites, like a pull on a rubber band. And most of us, Mitch, live somewhere in the middle. Sounds like a wrestling match, I say. A wrestling match. He laughs. Yes, you could describe life that way. So which side wins, I ask. Which side wins? He smiles at me, the crinkled eyes, the crooked teeth. Love wins. Love always wins. I can't tell you how many times over the years that line has been quoted to me. Love wins, love always wins. I think they may have even made a Hallmark thing out of it or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But he is, of course, has been proven right. Uh Back then and even to this day, life is a struggle, a tension of opposites, good good and good in the same thing, and yet you have to make a choice, bad and bad in the same paradigm, and yet you have to make a choice, good and bad in the same paradigm, and you have to make a choice. You get tugged with the yin and the yang of life, and I was like that all the way through school. And of course, Maury dealt with that when later, years later, when he was dying from ALS, and had to have that tug of don't go too soon, but don't hang on too long. You know, don't ignore the fact that you're ill and dying, but don't dwell on it. The tension of opposites. Mm-hmm. All right, up to my sophomore year. And this, these, these things are all dotted throughout the book as I go back and forth between my, the visits on the Tuesdays. I wrote this. In my sophomore year, I take two more of his courses. We go beyond the classroom, meeting now and then just to talk. I've never done this before with an adult who is not a relative, yet I feel comfortable doing it with Maury, and he seems comfortable making the time. Where shall we visit today, he asks cheerily when I enter his office. In the spring, we sit under a tree outside the sociology building, and in the winter, we sit by his desk, me in my gray sweatshirts and Adidas sneakers, Maury in Rockport shoes and corduroy pants. Each time we talk, he listens to me ramble, then he tries to pass on some sort of life lesson. He warns me that money is not the most important thing, contrary to the popular view on campus. He tells me I need to be more human. He speaks of the alienation of youth and the need for connectedness with the society around me. Some of these things I understand, some I do not. It makes no difference. The discussions give me an excuse to talk to him fatherly conversations I cannot have with my own father, who would like me to be a lawyer. Maury hates lawyers. What do you want to do when you get out of college, he asks. I want to be a musician, I say, piano player. Wonderful, he says. But that's a hard life. Yeah, a lot of sharks. That's what I hear. Still, he says, if you really want it, then you'll make your dream happen. I want to hug him, to thank him for saying that. But I'm not that open. I only nod instead. I'll bet you play piano with a lot of pep, he says. I laugh. Pep? He laughs back. Pep? What's the matter? They don't say that anymore? News flash, Maury. 
No, they don't say <laughs> it anymore. They didn't say it for a long time. They didn't say it even when I was growing up. Pep, pep. This I wrote about uh, one of his classes later that year. He enters the classroom, sits down, doesn't say anything. He looks at us, we look at him. At first there are a few giggles, but Maury only shrugs, and eventually a deep silence falls and we begin to notice the smallest sounds. The radiator humming in the corner of the room, the nasal breathing of one of the fat students. Some of us are agitated. When is he going to say something? We squirm, check our watches. A few students look out the window, trying to be above it all. This goes on a good 15 minutes before Maury finally breaks the silence with a whisper. What's happening here? He asks. And slowly, a discussion begins, as Maury had wanted all along about the effect of silence on human relations. Why are we embarrassed by silence? What comfort do we find in all the noise? I'm not bothered by the silence. For all the noise I make with my friends, I'm still not comfortable talking about my feelings in front of other people, especially not classmates. I could sit in the quiet for hours, if that's what this class demanded. On my way out, Maury stops me. You didn't say much today, he remarks. I don't know. I just didn't have anything to add. I think you have a lot to add. In fact, Mitch, you remind me of someone I knew who also liked to keep things to himself when he was younger. Who, I say. Me, he says. All right, cutting ahead to the following year. It is my junior year, 1978 when disco and Rocky movies are the cultural rage. We are in an unusual sociology class at Brandeis, something Maury calls group process. Each week we study the ways in which the students of the group interact with one another, how they respond to anger, jealousy, attention. We are human lab rats. More often than not, someone ends up crying. I refer to it as the touchy-feely course. Maury says I should be more open-minded. On this day, Maury says he has an exercise for us to try. We are to stand facing away from our classmates and fall backward, relying on another student to catch us. Most of us are uncomfortable with this, and we cannot let go for more than a few inches before stopping ourselves. We laugh in embarrassment. Finally, one student, a thin, quiet, dark-haired girl who I notice almost always wears bulky white fisherman sweaters, crosses her arms over her chest, closes her eyes, leans back, and does not flinch, like one of those Lipton tea commercials where the model splashes into the pool. For a moment, I'm sure she's going to thump on the floor. At the last instant, her assigned partner grabs her head and shoulders and yanks her up harshly. Whoa! Several students yell. Some clap. Maury finally smiles. You see, he says to the girl, you closed your eyes. That was the difference. Sometimes you cannot believe what you see. You have to believe what you feel. And if you are ever going to have other people trust you, you must feel that you can trust them too, even when you're in the dark, even when you're falling. That was one of those trust, famous trust exercises that they did in the 60s and the yeah, 70s. that scares me. Those yeah. scare me still. I don't yeah. like them. I don't well, trust anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't trust anybody to catch me. That's what Maury, Maury was into that kind of thing. 
This is the last entry that I wrote in Tuesdays with Maury about my time with Maury in college. And then, of course, there's so much more in the book about after it. By the start of my senior year, I've taken so many sociology classes, I'm only a few credits shy of a degree. Maury suggests I try an honors thesis. Me, I ask. What would I write about? What interests you, he says. We bat it back and forth until we finally settle on, of all things, sports. I begin a year-long project on how football in America has become ritualistic, almost a religion, an opiate for the masses. I have no idea that this is training for my future career. I only know it gives me another once-a-week session with Maury. And with his help, by spring, I have a 112-page thesis, researched, footnoted, documented, and neatly bound in black leather. I show it to Maury with the pride of a little leaguer rounding the bases of his first home run. Congratulations, Maury says. I grin as he leaps through it, and I glance around his office, the shelves of books, the hardwood floor, the throw rug, the couch. I think to myself that I have sat just about everywhere there is to sit in this room. I don't know, Mitch, Maury muses, adjusting his glasses as he reads. With work like this, we may have to get you back here for graduate school. Yeah, right, I say. I snicker, but the idea is momentarily appealing. Part of me is scared of leaving school. Part of me wants to go desperately. The tension of opposites. I watch Maury as he reads my thesis and wonder what the big world will be like out there. So that should give you a pretty fair idea wow. of the relationship that Maury and I had as student and teacher. And then, of course, 16 years passed, and it was that pull of that relationship that drew me back to him when I saw him on Nightline talking about dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah. And then those Tuesdays started. But that is where it all began. And that is a pretty fair slideshow of our relationship at college. And so at this time of year, early October, mm -hmm. students on campuses, it just, you know, the yeah. leaves are changing color. It just reminds me uh. of the magic of a student-teacher relationship when it's really good, uh, particularly at a college-level campus when you're, you're coming into yeah. your own and you meet a teacher who really kind of takes you under their wing and, uh, and how you can use that mentorship to grow. And I certainly did, mm -hmm. and I was really blessed. And it, as I say, it changed my life forever. So I hope if someone's listening out there who's at college, who's listening to this or has college-age kids, uh, find a mentor like Maury if you can. Get to know mm -hmm. them in the ways that I got to know Maury. And um, who knows? may change your life, too. Yeah. Or if you're a teacher, be a mentor. You know? Yeah. Open up to those kids. Right. Realize this is how people are looking at you. Mm -hmm. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this week. We always appreciate your spending time with us here on the Tuesday People Podcast. If you enjoy what you heard, you can always leave us a comment. We always enjoy reading those, a rating. That's wonderful, too. And you can go to wetuesdaypeople.com on the web to find out everything about our show, previous shows, discussion groups, and the like. Until we see you again, on behalf of Lisa Goich, I'm Mitch Album saying, see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. 
We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday people. <laughs>